three minutes after eight o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing on Radio 3. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, Wall Street gains for the first time this year. Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan say sell emerging markets even after the slide. And more investors cotton on to the idea that China's credit hole is becoming a kind of black hole for growth. And I really like this headline on the Bloomberg this morning. J.P. Morgan pays the price for shorting Bernie Madoff without telling anyone. The Fed's got one email by a J.P. Morgan executive that said we should visit Madoff's office to make sure it isn't a car wash. So we'll be looking at that. And first, we start off with the U.S. Attorney General, Preet Bharara. Today's charges have been filed because in this regard, J.P. Morgan, as an institution, failed and failed miserably. Okay, sorry, the U.S. attorney there, not the attorney general. He may get that promotion one day, but not just yet. And uh, here's a little food for thought on this Wednesday morning as well. Even though we are changing what we're doing for the purchase program, we're expecting to maintain a highly accommodative policy for quite a while. That is uh, Eric Rosengren, the Boston Fed president, on QE and interest rates, saying accommodation will be there for a long while. And uh, that did have an impact on markets today. A couple of other interesting items. Uh, boss snappings no longer cool in France. So we may get to that a little bit later. And a couple of other things that I won't really talk about, but you should check out from yesterday. Michael Bay's meltdown and the T-Mobile eccentric CEO kicked out after crashing an AT&T party in Vegas. Our guest this morning, Mark Conan from Cathay Conning Asset Management, Guy Steer from SockGen, and Sue Trin, currency strategist over at RBC Capital Markets. Okay, let's get to the news flow. JP Morgan will pay $2 billion U.S. dollars for missing some red flags while working as Bernie Madoff's main bank. It is forfeiting $1.7 billion, plus a separate $350 million fine and about $500 million in private settlements. The charges are two felony counts for violating provisions of the Bank Secrecy Act or the BSA. The BSA is a law that requires financial institutions as institutions to establish and maintain effective anti-money laundering compliance programs and to know their customers. It is not a tip. It is not a suggestion. It is a legal requirement enforceable through criminal sanction. Today's charges have been filed because, in this regard, J.P. Morgan, as an institution, failed and failed miserably. Mr. Barrara said others were responsible as well, but J.P. Morgan was right up there at the top. In part because of that failure, for decades, Bernie Madoff was able to launder billions of dollars in Ponzi proceeds, essentially through a single set of accounts at J.P. Morgan. He was able to do that for a lot of reasons. And to be sure, there were failures by lots of people in lots of places outside the bank. But one reason, among others, that Madoff was able to get away with his crime for so long was that J.P. Morgan had an inadequate and ineffective anti-money laundering program. 
So J.P. Morgan takes a hit for not catching Bernie Madoff when they were his bank. The government regulators like the SEC also didn't catch Madoff, even though they were his regulator. Uh, That was literally their job to catch the fraudsters. So it does beg the question, should the SEC be paying an even bigger penalty than J.P. Morgan? And if they pay a penalty to whom? (laughs) The SEC paying a penalty to the government wouldn't really amount to much, would it? U.S. stocks rose overnight, breaking a three-day sell-off. The Dow up 105 points at 16,530. The S&P 500 up 11 at 1837. The yield on the 10-year Treasury dropped two basis points to 2.94%. Let's go back to the Fed Boston president, Eric Rosengren. He said the Fed would be accommodative for a long time. Not only are we going to wait till we get the 6.5% unemployment before we start raising short-term interest rates, but we're probably going to wait well past the 6.5%, which means we're not going to see short-term rates moving up very quickly. So it highlights that even though we are changing what we're doing for the purchase program, we're expecting to maintain a highly accommodative policy for quite a while. Yeah, eight minutes after eight o'clock. We were supposed to do that at the beginning, right after the news, but we were sort of asleep at the wheel there. But not now. Hitting into high gear, U.S. exports uh, were at an all-time monthly high of $195 billion in November with record levels in oil and services. But the trade deficit with China was very high. It declined slightly from October, but at $26.9 billion, economists say it is headed for a new high. They say the deficit with China is a large drag on U.S. U.S. economic growth. Now, this one was kind of interesting. The French president, Francois Hollande, is undeniably and obviously a socialist. But police have just moved in on what had become something of a French tradition. That is, taking the boss hostage when you don't like some moves. French workers, unhappy with the closing of a tire factory, took the bosses captive. Police officers then entered the factory and told the union leaders they would be going to prison unless the bosses were released. Boss nappings have occurred at 3 a.m at Sony, Siemens, Caterpillar, and many French companies, but maybe not anymore. And we're just about ready to introduce Mark Conan, CEO of Cathay Conning Asset Management. And after that, Guy Steer will join us as well, and Sue Trin on currency. So very interesting program, a lot of, of really interesting guests uh, coming your way in just a few moments. Set it up with this. Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan said yesterday, sell emerging markets. They say the recent sell-off is not temporary. Goldman said, sell down your holdings by a third. So let's say good morning now to Mark Conan, as I mentioned, the uh, chief executive officer of Cathay Conning Asset Management. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Happy New Year. Yes, you too. It's an interesting time to talk uh, with you, as I know you look at allocations. We've had this so-called January effect. Not a great start to the year. Does it mean anything to you? Typically in the past, January effect has been a positive boost for markets. And I think investors coming in to 2014 have really taken a pause and uh, taken their foot off the gas. And we haven't seen much of um, the momentum that was expected coming through from last year. However, if it was a correction, it wasn't much of one. Although we did get a little bit of a sell-off here in Hong Kong. But on Wall Street, you're talking only, what, a 1%, a 1% to 2% of selling and then 
today it rockets back up. Yeah, 50% of the loss year to date was made up in one tra- in one trading day. So not, you shouldn't read too much into the to the start of the year. But I do think the uh, the year is going to begin fairly sluggishly. I think investors are still trying to digest the implications of a pullback in stimulus in the US and digest a number of other developments, both in this region, globally, emerging markets, and in Europe. So you wouldn't buy this little pause? I think some stocks are looking more favourably. Uh, we are looking more favourably, rather, at some of the stocks at the moment, and there are opportunities. We are overall positive for this region for the full year, but recognise that it's going to be back-ended, if you like. There's going to be a better performance in the second half of the year in the equity markets in this region um, as opposed to the first half of the year. Are we going to see another year where macro developments affect trading a lot or will it start to become a bit more normal where you have to look at individual companies very cl- uh, closely? Well, we are starting to see some significant valuation differentials open up between developed markets and certainly emerging markets. We are starting to see um, different patterns in terms of uh, earnings growth uh, across different regions and in different markets and within and within markets and across sectors. We haven't yet, though, seen that differentiation come through in terms of the way investors are allocating their funds. And that's probably going to remain the case for a little longer. I think there's still this overhang of top-down policy, macro policy, which is greatly influencing sentiment and is preventing these bottom-up trends showing their way through in terms of performance. You go back a couple of years, gold was looking really good, and you had these big whales moving into it, John Paulson and others, uh, and then all of a sudden it just hit a brick wall. Last year, U.S. stocks were great, so does it continue into this year? Emerging markets really suffered last year, so a lot of people would be asking the question, do I go with the old trend or do I look for value? Should I go back to emerging markets uh, to a certain degree this year? What do you think? Well, I think, Brian, it's very much related to your previous question, at which point do investors start to differentiate between different asset classes and different markets? And as long as they're not making that differentiation, we are not going to see a reallocation to any of the emerging markets. At the moment, the momentum is definitely with the developed markets, even though valuations are at the top end of the range that we've seen historically, and certain investors and commentators are worried about valuations, particularly in the United States. However, the um, the mood is with momentum, and we're likely to see... Uh, Um, As growth continues to expand in the U.S. economy, we're likely to see a little bit more capital expenditure coming through from companies, and that's likely to support earnings, top-line growth, and that's going to continue to move markets with the momentum that we saw build over the last 12 months. Is there any catalyst that gets these chief executive officers and chief financial officers to deploy cash? Well, absent of any uh, fiscal changes, um, there is no single catalyst. What we're seeing is this uh, accumulation of cash, particularly within the technology sector in the United States, and there's no natural uh, one-off event which is going to cause the the deployment of this cash. At the same time, for as long as short-term interest rates stay remarkably low, uh, it's easy pickings for companies to come out and raise Uh, money through debt issuance and we're continuing to see that as a trend and we've seen record issuance last year as we know in the u.s corporate sector this is great stuff to talk about and it's like a red flag to a bull and we've got a bull sitting right next to you in guy steer but we do these uh we do our guest guy individually so i know you're itching to get in but your time will come in just a moment uh yeah these guys uh this is sort of reporter's notebook these guys are in our admiralty studios and i'm up here at the uh mothership at uh the base camp of RTHK. And so I want to talk a little bit uh, longer uh, with Mark about 
about uh, allocations in China is um, I headlined that, you know, the China debt hole is sort of becoming a, a black hole for growth in that a lot of people now seem to be coming on to the idea that, you know, the reforms and attending to local government debt will be a drag on growth. Are you in that camp or do you think, look, they are very adept at management and they will go about their business and grow seven and a half percent anyway? Well, there's no doubt that the um, the policies that have been implemented since the uh, global financial crisis and probably extended too far in terms of credit growth on the mainland are being reined in, and this is going to be a constraining factor on growth. For and it's a good re, it's a good set of circumstances having unbridled credit growth, uh, supporting economic growth, and. Um, potentially a misallocation of capital uh, is not long-term in the best interests of the mainland economy. So um, in answer to your question, yes, the, um, the concerns about the amount of debt building up in certain segments of the mainland economy will constrain growth for sure, but it's not necessarily bad news. And you talked a little bit about the um, recent publication of a report which talked about uh, local government debt and the uh, accumulation of that, and that was probably the most detailed account of um, that situation that we've ever seen in China, and it was alarming in terms of the rate of growth that we've seen uh, in recent times. However, we don't believe yet that it's reached the level that it has um, called that it will cause the government uh, problems in terms of managing it so we do believe the government is in a position through various reforms and changes in the tax arrangements that it can manage the situation okay i've got sue trend waiting as well on currencies so this will be the final question uh quite an interesting item in the shanghai security news this morning uh it cites a meeting um from a recent uh, commission that the the cr cr uh, csrc the regulator there is recommending that large companies whose share prices have fallen below book value should buy back stock. And I think that's interesting because you talk about growth and will it affect the stock market? Well, China's had great growth and a lousy stock market. The U.S. had lousy growth and a great stock market because a lot of companies bought back stock. Does something like this interest you at all that maybe Chinese companies will start buying back stock uh, if they're down below book value? Yeah, it sounds like um, capitalism with Chinese characteristics again, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) You know, forcing companies to allocate capital uh, is exactly what the Chinese authorities are trying to move away from in terms of a a misallocation within the economy. I think probably it's being reported as an instruction, but probably it's just uh, general guidance and uh, a gentle nudge for companies to consider um, the way in which they uh, manage their resources. Well, actually, the CSRC recommended that large companies do this. So in China, we don't know whether that's an order or 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 simply, uh, hey, here's uh, some food for thought, something to think about. Anyway, Mark, thank you very much for joining us here, and we'd love to have you back and talk again. Mark Conan, CEO of Cathay Conning Asset Management. This is Money for Nothing. The time is now 17 minutes after 8 o'clock. Say good morning to Sue Trin now, who is a currency strategist, senior currency strategist at RBC Capital Markets. Sue, good morning. Thank you very much for hanging in there. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, outlook at the moment. We've had a stronger Japanese yen in the in the last day or two, and that has hurt Japanese stocks. But I should say this morning, uh, the Nikkei is up 126 points, and it looks like uh, the dollar has gained a little against the yen. 104.69 is watching the dollar yen good sport for you. Uh, 
Uh, yes, certainly uh, on my radar, um, covering the developed market space um, in FX world. Uh, at the moment, Dolly Yen is very much a tug of war within the 104 to 105 range for now, and uh, with limited potential Japanese data or event risks this week, the eventual break of either end of um, that range is likely to come down to the broader US dollar sentiment as well as the key US employment report, which is out on Friday. Is the dollar likely to go higher because the economy is strengthening, or uh, will we go back to a period where you know dollar weakness is good for stocks and um, you know everybody's happy? I think it really comes down to why the U.S. dollar is rallying, um, or selling off for that matter. And um, at, at the moment, anyway, uh, the U.S. dollar is broadly uh, firmer ever since the Federal Reserve announced earlier than expected uh, tapering um, in its December statement. Uh, it announced that tapering would begin in early January um, as the economy seems to be pulling itself out of um, sluggish growth momentum that had otherwise been weighing it down. Um, that certainly helped to elevate sentiment um, and certainly um, towards the US dollar as well as uh, towards stocks. So what's your best investment idea at the moment? Uh, for the meantime, we are actually uh, a little bit more circumspect on the Canadian dollar. Uh, we are expecting this year will be a likely period where um, the Canadian dollar underperforms um, as uh, a number of factors weigh. In particular, um, it has the largest current account deficit or external um, deficit in the G10 space. Um, and the funding of that um, deficit had never really been an issue up until um, recent months where we've noticed a significant pulling back in terms of long-term capital inflows um, as safe haven demand has waned. Um, and that funding of the deficit will become um, increasingly questionable in an environment where the Bank of Canada is unlikely to be um, tightening monetary policy um, until at least the middle of 2015. Does Australia fall into that camp as well then? Uh, I think it's really a tale of two um, different deficits there. Um, while Canada and Australia have, have amongst the highest um, deficits within the G10, um, Australia has shown uh, funding of its deficit um, is, has not really been uh, too difficult. It's still pulling in um, enough long-term capital inflow to fund that deficit. Um, likewise, its interest rates are relatively uh, firmer also than, the, than it is in Canada. Um, second point to note also is that the Australian dollar has uh, sold off quite sharply as well, um, which has also been another factor um, pulling in that long-term capital inflow to fund that deficit. And just finally, with uh, a slightly more dovish Janet Yellen taking over the Fed uh, from Ben Bernanke, uh, is there likely to be much of an impact on the renminbi and the Hong Kong dollar as a result? Well, I mean, you say that Yellen is widely perceived as a dove, and that's certainly the broader consensus. But I think at the end of the day, she is a central banker, uh, first and foremost. And central bankers are apt to change their stance if the data demand. Um, in other words, um, you know, their stance is very data dependent, and that's very much the Federal Reserve's stance. Um, and that's going to determine the tapering timeline going forward. Um, the reality is that it's business as usual. Um, I think continuity reigns supreme, and as far as our view on the renminbi is concerned, we're expecting further um, a sort of gradual pace of appreciation to, uh, to unfold as we move through 2014. 
a gradual pace. So you're looking at what two to three percent or so for the renminbi. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, a very reasonable pace of appreciation. Um, certainly the uh, new leadership have uh, shown their commitment to pursue uh, reforms as well, and um, they've shown a desire for a quick rollout of those reforms uh, in an environment of around about 7 to 8% growth as well in China. Um, that should also um, help underpin um, that gradual um, appreciation that we're expecting in the renminbi. Okay, Sue, thanks very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Sue Trin is a senior currency strategist at RBC Capital Markets. And as headlined earlier, I have with me in our studios Guy Steer, head of research for Asia at Societe Generale. Guy, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Happy New Year. Yes, you too. And thanks very much for coming into our studio. It's been a while since you've been uh, on on the program, uh, but very nice to hear your views. Uh, What would you like to talk about the most? I would say um, Asian credit markets are certainly a topic of interest, but I'm happy to discuss anything you you have a particular interest Okay, so Asian credit markets are quite interesting because uh, you've had uh, a big change as of May of last year. A lot of money left Asian currencies and Asian bonds as a result. Stocks briefly, then they sort of came back. Um, I think there's a lot of – there's polarity out there on on, – uh, from people about um, what will happen with Asian credit markets this year. Where do you stand? Well, I think the the issue for Asia is that they're in a quite different part of the cycle than the rest of the world in that Asian growth has been really pretty good since 2009. So therefore, Asian companies have invested quite a lot and leverage has risen as a result. And I think, unfortunately, what that means is in a world where U.S. bond yields are likely to rise, we're going to see Asian companies come under a little bit more pressure than companies elsewhere. So I think that globally, in terms of credit markets, Asian credit markets are going to be in a more difficult situation than, say, European or U.S. credit markets this year. And why? Well, because the leverage has gone up, uh, what's going to happen is twofold. First of all, uh, government bond yields are going to be rising in the U.S. over the course of this year, and that means that insurance companies in Asia are going to demand less credit. So we're going to see less demand from the uh, from the investor base. And secondly, supply is going to continue to rise because companies still have fairly aggressive uh, investment plans. Uh, their operating cash flow is going to begin to decelerate over the course of this year. They're going to need more funding. So it's a fairly classic case of higher levels of supply and lower levels of demand, and that'll squeeze spreads up. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the deleterious effects possibly of the leverage uh, because uh, big carry trade has been in play for a while. People borrowing money at very low interest rates and uh, and buying buying bonds, uh, high yield bonds, especially in Asia. Very attractive. Uh, is there any possible concern out there that, um, you know, that this is going to blow up anytime soon? I think the, th- the first thing to think about is that the Uh, One of the big issues which has supported Asian credit markets over the past four years has been the fact that for a lot of insurance companies, government bond yields have dropped so low that they can't hit their targets by buying governments. So therefore, they have tended to increase their allocation to credit markets, and that's definitely going to change as government bond yields go up. And then the second factor you mentioned is that as government bond yields are rising, that also makes the funding costs on any of these positions more expensive. So I do think that that sort of pincher effect, we definitely saw that uh, rising government bond yields reduce demand for credit from, say, the uh, retail investors, the private bank type investors already over the course of 2013. I think over the course of 2014, it's going to again be a question of uh, declining demand for uh, for Asian credit. So would North Asian credit look better than Southeast Asia? 
I think so, uh, in the sense that um, Southeast Asia generally tends to be um, uh, more uh, risky credits with uh, wider spreads. Um, And so it's going to be the kind of environment where people are going to move back to more defensive names. When we talk about North Asia, we're talking about uh, both, I suppose, uh, China and Korea, and the market there is incredibly different. Uh, I think Korean companies are generally reducing their leverage or trying to reduce their leverage and have been uh, managing the balance sheet more carefully over the past 18 months. Uh, Chinese companies continue to uh, issue an awful lot. Uh, and so I would say Korea is the most defensive bet amongst uh, in, the, in the, the region. What about um, Vietnam opening up a little bit? Um, does, is there much credit uh, demand there? Um, is, is it still a, a rather volatile um, small market and people should be wary of the currency moving against you? Well, it is a small market. It's a market which has had uh, a bit of a checkered past, um, particularly in the last four to five years in terms of credit situations. Uh, it's uh, not necessarily a very easy market to invest in, but I'd say it's in a slightly different position of the cycle than some of the other Southeast Asian markets uh, in that uh, it hasn't performed as well as some of the other markets over the past four years. Therefore, I think, in, oddly enough, it's, in a, it's a somewhat more defensive opportunity than places like uh, Indonesia or Thailand, which are more established and better known markets. People who don't know you may not know that you're quite a deep thinker and somebody that looks uh, very closely at a lot of these um, problems that are out there. I'm just wondering if we could take a step back and look at China and see whether or not in the next couple of years, there's the potential for a a big crisis like we saw in Europe and the United States, uh, whether it's a lot longer out or whether it's not going to happen at all. Well, I think there definitely is the potential. I mean, China, the the vision that we have of China over the next uh, four to five years is that Chinese growth will be uh, decelerating probably faster than most people expect. Uh, it'll be a struggle to reach, say, the 7% growth target this year. And we see that growth, sort of core growth in China decelerating through six over the next couple of years, through five over uh, the, the couple of years after that. The question, as you mentioned, is is in that process of decelerating growth, are we likely to see a blow-up in terms of China, what, what people talk about as a hard landing? And uh, I think that that is still a, a serious possibility, particularly what China is still dealing with is the big growth of bank loans in 2009, uh, where we had in 2009 30% plus year-on-year bank loan growth. Uh, normally, in any economy, if you saw that kind of bank loan growth, that would lead to a bad loan cycle uh, three years after that. In a sense, the Chinese bad loan cycle is already overdue. So the big fear there, I think, definitely has to be Uh, how China will deflate uh, the credit bubble and whether it will deflate quickly, uh, i.e. with much slower growth in the the near term before a recovery, or whether it will deflate slowly. And and would you bet on the slowly because you don't have the freedom of movement as you did in the West? Well, I think we would bet on the slowly, but I think think the problem with the slowly is that it raises the specter of having uh, a Chinese growth slowdown, which is similar to what happened in Japan. 
And I think that's why uh, the Chinese government probably will opt for the slowly, but they probably will opt for a bit of bank restructuring as well. So if you're a local business manager, you're running a business and you have a presence in China, would you be quite cautious over the next couple of years, not spend a lot of money that you don't have to? I think that would be uh, – I think what you would want to be doing is being fairly cautious about investment given that the um, CapEx levels are already very high and capacity utilization is already very low. Uh, and I think, yes, you would want to be cautious in terms of balance sheet management and cautious in terms of your investment. There are great medium opportunities in China, particularly in – uh, consumer businesses, particularly in areas which sell to the rising middle class, and that's very apparent. Yeah. But I do think you have to be cautious about the investment. Okay, so your your name is bullish, but uh, your position not exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Guy. Guy Steer, head of research for Asia at Sockgen. Markets are higher this morning. There's definitely risk on in the picture. The Nikkei up 113 points. Australia's higher. So is Seoul. All right, let's take a look at the weather today. Mainly cloudy with some mist. Sunny periods expected during the day. And we're heading up to a high of 21 degrees. Not bad for January when you look at minus 20 in Chicago and other places. Rather cool mornings, though, in the next few days. Money for nothing at 830. Here comes the news with Samantha Butler. The first shipment from Syria's chemical weapons program has been removed from the country as part of an international agreement to eliminate President Assad's chemical arsenal. He agreed to the deal last year after hundreds of people were killed in a poison gas attack. Inspectors from the international watchdog, the OPCW, are leading the operation. The BBC's Anna Holligan is following the story. The confirmation came from the OPCW and the UN that the first consignment of Syria's chemical stockpile had been loaded onto a Danish cargo vessel and transported towards international waters. There it will receive protection from Russian, Chinese, Danish and Norwegian warships. It will remain there until the additional containers are transported to the Syrian port of Latakia for collection. We know that the delays have been caused by heavy fighting along the route and the presence of opposition fighters. Researchers have found Indonesia